Stay hungry, stay foolish. Just a quick shout out to simplify the podcast for anyone who's taken a critical look at their habits, happiness, relationships, health, and thoughts. It's by the guys over at Blinkist. We had Nicholas Johnson on a few weeks back. Really cool show and really nicely presented. Check it out. It's on iTunes. The Now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome Barney Lonis. We're going to focus on data and how it can actually affect us as people rather than the big corporates that it's usually associated with, etc. But before we do that, tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you very much. Well, I have lived a career of various different guises, but um, it's always been involved in some version of digital transformation. I've just recently left Mercer, which is a top 10 management consulting company, where I was chief digital officer for three years. Previous to that, I'd done um, eight years in Asia. I'm working with um, Ogilvy and Mather and various clients like like IBM, Nestle, Coca-Cola, Huawei, helping them with their digital strategies in in entering Asia and and building successful businesses there. And before that, I was uh, working at Warner Brothers in in, in Europe, uh, launching films like Harry Potter and the Matrix and building global audiences and building brands overnight for, for Warner Brothers. So I've kind of done various versions of digital transformation for these businesses. Very diverse background as well, but uh, really converging on digital and digital transformation. And I became aware of some of the work you did in Mercer. And I thought it was so interesting the way that you've used data to actually inform people about themselves and their future. And I'd love to tell our audience a bit about that, if you would, Bernie. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Mercer, for those of you who know, is an interesting business. It's a management consulting company that focuses on HR consulting. So it advises businesses on how to best manage their people. And there are kind of three principal areas. And the first in the area of health. Uh, So Mercer is a uh, health insurance broker. And it advises companies on the sorts of benefits it should give to their workforce. And through that, it understands the, the suffering of people when they get ill, when they get ill, how much it's going to cost them and their road to recovery. And as part of that, it also has got a deep understanding of not reactive management of health problems, but then the large movement around proactive management of health and well-being and wellness. And increasingly, I'm sure you've seen, you know, the movements of corporations to running kind of fitness programs. And, you know, part of the motivation to do that is because healthy people spend more of their time with their family doing things that they want to do. They're more productive. And from an economic point of view, it's better to sort of spend money on proactive management of well-being than it is on reacting to actually sort of when illness comes. So there are some sort of interesting angles um, around health. On the well side of things, Mercer helps companies understand uh, and manage pension funds. So the kind of the longer term retirement. And through that guise, it helps think through what age do people want to retire? What sort of lives do they want to live when they retire? And how much money will they need uh, to have to not only manage retirement, but also the kind of events in their life? Uh, They could be catastrophes or they could relate back to sort of um, health issues that people need to do the things that they want to do and to provide lives for their family, education, um, houses, 
or other things. So on the well side of things, you know, at a business level, Mercer was helping companies manage large scale pension funds. But at a kind of human employee level, the opportunity is clearly there to help people think through what are the lives that they want to live in the long term and how do they need to start saving to, to, to be able to, to lead that life. And then the final area that we've been working on is in the area that we kind of term broadly kind of career. But what that really means is around what are you here to do? What's your existential purpose? You know, am I doing the right job? Is it fulfilling me? Is it the right work-life balance? Could I be doing a similar job in a parallel industry and be paid more or be paid less, but it's an industry that delivers a purpose that's more aligned with my own kind of purpose? And I think you think about those three different things together, the health, the wealth and career from an individual perspective, you know, you begin to unlock a whole host of possible futures for an individual. And I, I just think it's incredibly exciting because I think everyone thinks about their purpose in life. Am I doing the right thing? Is is this thing really going to help me get me where I want to or me and my family? Um, and, and the difficulty about that, I have no idea relative to other people whether I'm doing the right thing. I have no idea whether I could be paid more. I have no idea whether I'm saving enough money. I mean, who the hell knows what other people are saving? And the interesting thing is, is, is that all the data exists to answer those really tricky, gnarly questions. And so I've been thinking a lot in the past few years about how do you map out a game of life, you know, plan through different scenarios of what if questions to help them, you know, provide an overarching narrative to some of the kind of key decisions that they're trying to make. It's really interesting because when you think of yourself at different stages in your life, and, and I suppose to put it in context, when you're, when you're busy on a path or on a journey, you don't step back to think about these things like my purpose or what do I want to achieve? And oftentimes people just get on their mouse on a wheel and just keep running and actually don't ever step back and then wonder why I'm dissatisfied. But when you say that, like all the data is there and it's just up to us to actually go and grasp it. And I can actually be paid X amount more in Los Angeles than I am in London and at the end of the month, this is how much money I'll have left over. And this is what my standard of living will be like. Having th that data available is unbelievably worthy for somebody coming out of college or wanting to change careers or just somebody who wants an adventure. Yeah, I mean, it, it is so complex, isn't it? You know, a lot of people don't, especially as they kind of leave college, they don't sort of don't know where the hell to start. And I, I often talk to my team or people who I'm interviewing about early part of your career is very much a clean sheet of paper. And uh, I don't want to say that no single choice is the wrong choice. But I mean, you can make more mistakes or, or you, you know, you can go off and get half a dozen experiences that will then after a period of time form a whole picture of you and your capabilities. But any, you know, your first move doesn't define who you are, your second job doesn't define who you, you are. You know, I think those early steps in your career, you're looking to develop in no particular order, a handful of skills that, that you know, seem to play to your interests and, 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 and passions. Um, but I think thereafter, uh, once, you know, in your early 30s, maybe, then 
then it begins to get a little bit more, um, uh, not confusing, but difficult to understand who you are and what is the world of possibilities and what are your unique advantages within that world. Um, And as I say, you know, within MRSA context, you know, the data exists for what every single person in the world is paid in every single city as very, very sort of tightly defined by their skill sets, their years of experience, their soft and their hard skills. And when you think about career progression in that context, it can help provide a lens for you to think through what are the soft skills I need and what are the hard skills I need to develop and demonstrate to people. Because you can see comparative to you peers from the same town or from the same industry or from the same company where they where their particular sort of skill sets lie and therefore where you stand relative to them um, and it's I think it's that perspective of uh, where you stand relative to other people and where your unique advantages are or maybe where the opportunity for you to go off and proactively develop some more soft skills because if you do it would put you in a position to get a bump in your salary or or to sort of shift in industry. The industry at the moment seems really not to provide these tools to enable people to model out potential futures. I mean, I think as you, you know, you responded to this, Aidan, that it's, um, there's something very powerful in the idea of a a tool through which you can map out different futures and understand the almost a little bit more about the future you. And the fact is that there needn't be, you know, a single future you. There are alternative future yous uh, that will impact your wealth, you know, but also your health, your work-life balance, and you know maybe some other goals that you feel you know particularly passionate about um, on, on your bucket list. Um, so I mean, you know, all the data does exist, and you, you know, a world where by 2050, 50 percent of people will be freelancers. I think there are increasing imperative for people to kind of take control of their career path and the decisions they're making. They will need to self-advocate more. They will need to be much more buttoned down about how to pitch themselves up as people in a gig economy to sort of, you know, to be put onto a project or a program. And I think, you know, there's a great opportunity to use data to sort of help people develop themselves more. You've mentioned the gig economy and that there's a, a, an entire shift were happening in the workplace where people actually do care why they are doing something and where the company is going and they they're joining companies for stories you know the true stories they tell you know you know i think it's companies like tom's shoes who give away a pair of shoes for everyone they sell that that stuff means more than it ever did in the world and people are joining companies like that so therefore this data for people to feel like they're going somewhere is extremely powerful as well. Yeah, someone said to me the other day that uh, particularly, was their word, particularly millennials, uh, uh, you know, want opportunities that are more kind of purpose-driven. Every time anyone says, particularly millennials, I always re- reject it. I kind of think, wait a minute. A, I'm not too sure really what that means. But B, damn, you know, I feel exactly the same. No, I, I'm not a millennial, but I also feel as if in today's world um, that I want to be more aligned with a purpose-driven company. And I don't think it's just a millennial attitude per se. And 
I, I think what's interesting when you kind of project forward, what is the future of work going to look like for us and our children and our sort of families and friends? You know, one big surprise when I came to the US uh, after I don't know, a decade in China, I came to the US three years ago, was how many people work from home here? And I came in and I had a team of, you know, about 40 people. And it wasn't for a, a year or so until I'd met them all physically or, uh, you know, we'd spend tons of time on the phone every day, uh, increasingly tons of time on video every day. So I sort of feel as if I knew them. Um, but it was a big eye opener to me because having worked a lot in uh, Europe and the UK, it felt at least when I was working there that, you know, the opportunity to work from home just wasn't there for what I'd call kind of, I don't know, mainstream jobs, whatever that means. Um, but it was a real eye opener. It was a real liberator. And um, I've got to say that when I talk to some of my user designers, my UX team in pretty Vermont and New England, it always made me angry, <laughs> you know, fundamentally jealous. I could hear the cows moving in the background. And I, I just thought, God damn it. I mean, these people have got it right, don't they? Yeah. They're doing a job with a major business, but they're leading a life in a beautiful kind of totally non-urban environment that they're obviously, you know, that, that's their choice. And there's something just super liberating to me now in a little kind of work environment. People are much more liberated to work from where the hell they want. It enables people, I think, to lead, as it were, more fulfilling lives against the things that they want to do. So, you know, that work-life balance becomes less of a balance and it's a sort of an infusion where work and life become more infused together. And that's why I feel that, you know, working for a more, uh, you know, business that's more aligned to my purposes is my God-given ways as well. Um, and it's not just a millennial um, sort of kind of issue. You mentioned people working from home a lot, Barney, and you know we're both in New York, and I'm experiencing the the daily grind of the subway every morning, and they're calling it the summer of hell here because of all the work's going on. And when you think of the benefit of having of avoiding that, and the the opportunity cost of an hour up to an hour or more for some people of getting into an office, who are committed people in the first place, when when you're hiring the right people. You don't have to worry, are they going to be doing the work or not? So therefore, giving them that opportunity to work from home with the trust that they will be working from home is just just seems natural. While we're still stuck in the kind of old world where you have to conform and wear the suit and, you know, suited and booted for work because that's the way it was always done. Actually, in some of the kind of whether it's London or Dublin, there are very, very kind of modern notions of the future of work in the workplace and kind of, you know, working from home. You know, in the US, it's it's sort of interesting because, you know, in a lot of legacy businesses and a lot of the kind of the, the, the largest businesses, there is a degree of formality kind of deeply embedded into the culture, into the physical edifice of the business. So the physical architecture offices, a sort of hard-coded legacy, the hard-coded sort of non-digital, non-fluid. And I think, you know, you're seeing a, a mini revolution. Um, this kind of sort of hot summer in New York is surfacing some of those tensions, which is there just is no need. There is no arguable reason to have people kind of sweated out in, you know, incompetent transport systems um, to function and, and, and deliver their job. There is just no need. And, and more 
you, you know, actually there's a sort of a strong argument for saying that working from home or working remotely um, can lead to greater efficiencies, it can lead to greater creativity. And if you are creative, I think it can also lead to lots of kind of growth opportunities for the business. A while back, I was kind of thinking through some of the impacts of the future of work and what does work look like when remote working, you know, 50% of the economy is, is freelancers, where people are much more accepting that you don't need to come to the office to do work. How will that impact actually the physical workspace? And it made me think that you needed to sort of design more kind of theatrically the physical spaces where people come to work together. No need for offices per se, but maybe literally a need for theatre, right? The only reason why people would want to come in to physically be together is because the emotion of being, you need an audience, you need to create some drama and a piece of theatre, a big presentation of team working, right? So the purpose of coming together will evolve and where people meeting also need to evolve. You've got to create something in the workplace that cannot exist via a digital kind of channel, via video or, or some sort of effective collaboration tool. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of exciting when you look at some of the modern workspaces that are emerging, um, sort of more fluid office spaces and collaborative spaces that the that, that people have. It's really exciting. But it's also quite a challenge to some of the legacy businesses. I mean, um, I've heard lots of CEOs talk about um, how much office space that they can cut 30% of their existing office space costs because actually people are not coming into work so much. Uh, so there's a kind of cost opportunity to sort of reduce space from as a business overhead. Um, but I'm also trying to pitch for the reinvested into creating workspaces that are inspiring, that they create rich collaborative and cultural spaces that really unify the company and the people who work there. Yeah, and it, it all comes back to when you, when you're saying that it kind of it's it's triggering lots of things, but it's always kind of the same thing, which is the company needs a direction, a north star to actually everybody goes and points there. So if if someone is working from home, you know they're working towards the same place, and oftentimes we're all sitting together in an office, but nobody, you know, you go where are we going, and everybody will point different directions, and once you unify everybody on that way. You, it doesn't matter where you work. The office becomes almost like a town hall where you touch base with everybody and just realign everybody, make sure everybody's still pointed in a direction, give them updates, and it totally reinvigorates the office space. Yet, like you said, there are so much hard-coded <laughs> offices out there that there's a massive amount of work needed to be done. Yeah, I mean, if you think around religion itself, right? So uh, I don't... No, if this analogy will work, but if you think about churches and cathedrals, right, they are there architecturally and theatrically to inspire people and to evoke kind of uh, emotions and awe and bonding and commitment to people. And, and, and I think it's that that's the sort of sense where I think that the workplace needs to evolve to, because actually when you're sending your people out into the world, right, to sort of go off and build business and, and live and breathe our culture and, and go off and um, be creative and, and sell our products. Um, you know, the fact is that all of that can be done remotely and um, that the future of work will 
put a lot more control and power to the individual to define who they are, what skill sets they have to offer, and what kind of what projects or what work they want to put themselves forward to do. There's all sorts of data that we can be using to help people refine their professional and their, their personal kind of um, sort of skill sets so that they're competitive and help them understand how they should be managing their life across health, wealth, or career. So that's sort of one kind of important train of thinking. And then the second is, in some ways, the enabling technology and sort of digital workplace that can help truly liberate people so that they're not working in a sort of a single office space. And some of those collaborative tools that help people track the progress against sort of projects and collaborate on similar documents, um, you know, is a major, major issue for a lot of big businesses because you've got investments in, in products like Salesforce uh, or the Microsoft Office 365 collaborative suite. Um, you've got the Google um, enterprise work spaces and all of these are powerful but expensive tools um, that can enable, that can really effectively liberate people. Um, but the task of infusing those across a business is also quite a big task, right? So for a small startup, it's really easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not their headache. Yeah. But for large businesses, actually, the migration towards a truly digital workplace is, you know, is a really big but exciting challenge. Yeah. And it's got, there's a great quote by John Maynard Keynes, the famous British uh, economist, and he says, ideas or innovation isn't the problem it's actually letting go of the old ideas is the challenge and i always think of that when you say about the startups like starting with this way of working is easy but it's actually letting go of the old that's the challenge and you've been through that firsthand yeah and um yeah, I mean, it is absolutely you know, the level of investment that a large business has to make to really truly digitize its internal workplace is very significant. So, um, you know, maybe it comes back to your point, Aidan, around the need for alignment in the business about, you know, are we fully committed to, you know, building the future of work and the future digital workplace within our business and then laying down the roadmap to achieving that because there is absolutely no doubt that when a college graduate is looking at some of the larger um, legacy kind of businesses saying do, do I want to go and work for a more traditional environment that's less sophisticated from a digital perspective that's sort of less fluid and fluent into how to get people to collaborate together or do I go for a nimble startup that's got every single sweet open source tool that, that I can optimize and um, you know, use to enhance my life that the sweeter life looks as if it's the smaller startup? So I think you know, big businesses are super aware that in, in the war for talent, this issue is going to become very, very uh, palpable for them, that they just will not be able to attract the best talent if they're not enabling people to lead, um, you know, sort of more empowered um, lives so that they're not kind of tied down to a traditional workplace, I think. Yeah, it's, that's really interesting. And, and it's, uh, it's been a, some hell of a journey you've been on, Barney, and it's uh, more to come. But uh, where can people reach out to you? You're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter at 
Barney, B-A-R-N-E-Y-L-O, Barney Lowe. You, you know, as I kind of piece through my own career journey going forward, um, I will be landing somewhere, you know, at, at this sort of meeting point of the, the future of work and um, helping empower in people, individuals, to make the choices that they need to, to lead their best possible version of life. Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Barney Lonis. Thank you.